Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 5, Methodologies for the Study of Magic. Well, magic. It's often hard to know where to start when you're introducing a big topic, but this is especially true with magic, one of the most powerful, complex, and resonant tropes in Western culture. A good place to start might be to define what we mean by magic. This is a reassuringly tidy idea, but as it turns out, it's impossible. So let's get this out of the way right at the beginning. The problem with magic is that it doesn't exist. Now, I hear someone saying, I know that, no one actually believes in magic anymore. Well, first of all, you might be surprised. There are plenty of people that believe that magic is real, and sometimes they believe in magic even when they believe they don't believe in magic, if you see what I mean depending on what we mean by magic. But that's not what I mean here anyway. What I mean to say is this. The term magic cannot be used in a consistent, meaningful way in the historical study of magic. And yes, I am aware of the self-contradiction inherent in the previous sentence. This self-contradiction is a sign that we're dealing with a very labyrinthine concept, which has a tendency towards contradictions. So we'll come back to this labyrinth at the end of the episode. But for now, let's try to get some solid ground under our feet, first of all. There are a couple of things which we can say about magic. Firstly, we can look at the history of the word itself, which is often a good entry point for considering a tricky subject. Secondly, we can discuss the distinction between first and second order terms, aka emic and etic terms, which will help us to be clear about just what we're talking about in a given context when we use the word magic. Now, this is the boring academic part, but I'm hoping everyone will bear with me because it's quite useful stuff. And then thirdly, we can specify exactly what the term magic might mean, but also why it's very problematic. But having done all this, I think it will be both fun and instructive to dive headfirst into the labyrinth that I just talked about. The labyrinth of meanings associated with this most powerful of concepts, and maybe get a grip on the confusing and paradoxical nature of the subject by getting confused and caught up in paradoxes ourselves. Otherwise, this episode may be useful, but it won't be magical. But let's start with the word magic. The term originates in Greek, where we find magia, the practice of magic, which is done by a magos, which will translate as mage. The Latin terms magia and magus derive from and are pretty much equivalent to the Greek terms. So far, so good. But it turns out that the Greek term magos doesn't originally come from Greek at all. It comes from the Persian term makush. So who or what was a makush when he was at home in ancient Persia? Well, we actually know less about the native makush than we do about the Greek idea of the magos. But we can say that the magush were a a class of religious specialists in the Achaemenid Empire. So that is the superstate, which we commonly refer to as the Persian Empire, founded by Cyrus the Great around the year 550 BCE. And these are the guys who tried to invade mainland Greece and had that whole Battle of Marathon and Battle of Thermopylae scenario. So the Makush were a group of religious specialists in the Achaemenid Empire. They had special powers and a set of special ritual practices and so on. And they were seemingly a separate ethnic group within the Persian state. And they obviously made a big impression on the Greeks. The earliest appearance of the term Magos in Greek are in the 6th century, right at the time when the Greek-Persian interaction and conflict were really starting to heat up. 
Now, the Persians, and we'll refer to the Achaemenids as the Persians because everyone does, although strictly speaking, the Persians were actually one specific ethnic group among many who made up the huge Achaemenid state. Persians were the big enemies of Greece in the classical period. Think of Aeschylus's play The Persians or Herodotus's history, which is centered on the rise of the Persian Empire and its subsequent conflict with the Greek city-states. But the Greeks were also in awe of the Persians in a lot of ways, and they were clearly fascinated by their habits while being repelled by them at the same time. So we might take as an example here Xenophon's Chiropaidea, for example, a book where the youth and education of Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian state, is sort of grecified and mutated and idealized and held up as a great example for everyone. But of course, the social norms and educational norms that Xenophon is using are actually Spartan ones rather than anything genuinely Persian or recognizably Persian. So there's a very complex relationship going on here between Greeks and Persians. Edward Said's well-known book Orientalism is a study of the way in which the West has portrayed its Eastern neighbors through the distorting lens of its own preoccupations and prejudices. And it's not for nothing that the book's earliest case study is of the ways in which the classical Greeks caricatured and distorted the Persians, while at the same time having a kind of troubled admiration for aspects of their culture. And this brings us to magic, because the evidence seems to suggest that the Greeks viewed the figure of the Makush as a pretty sinister sort of cat who made bad stuff happen through powerful rituals, but also potentially as someone who was on especially close speaking terms with the gods. So we have an ambivalence to the term magic right here at the beginning. Bad use of ritual, tainted perhaps by a hint of foreign otherness due to the Persian origins, but also an idea that the magos is somehow closer to the gods than ordinary folk. We'll be fleshing out the earliest Greek appearances of the term magos and magia in the next episode with some help from an expert, so that's all we need to say here for the moment. But I would like to raise a couple of suggestive points about what we've been saying so far. Firstly, we should note that a key element in what it is to be a magos and to do magia seems to be rituals. You don't just make stuff happen through willpower. You need to do some kind of formal hocus-pocus. We might add here that Material items like amulets and talismans can also affect magia, but they're generally produced using ritual means, so they function like a sort of battery storing up a ritual for later use when it's needed. And rituals are indeed an important core element to the study of magic across cultures and throughout history, so not just in the context of the ancient Greeks, but in many different cultures and in much later periods as well. Even though some conceptions of what magic is in modern times will de-ritualize it. So let's hold on to this idea of the centrality of ritual to which we shall return. Secondly, it's important, I think, to re-emphasize this notion of otherness. In the search for a proper universal definition of the term magic that we as scholars can use across the board, we have to deal a lot with what are called normative positions. That is, whatever is taken to be the norm of ritual practice, be it ancient European traditional religious practices like sacrifice and purification, Christian prayer and liturgy, Islamic worship with its defined methods of prayer, fasting, and so on, or the complex ritual requirements of Jewish law, you name it. All of these normative forms of practice will have their other in the form of a non-normative practice. This heteropraxis, and I think I just made that word up, but I can't be the first person who's thought of it, can be defined and managed in a number of ways by the normative tradition. They can be rejected, they can be absorbed, wholly or partially, they can be ignored. But one of the hallmarks of the traditions which fall under the heading of magic is that they're defined by someone as non-normative. 
they're deviant and foreign in some way to the right normal sort of ritual praxis. To paraphrase Naomi Janowitz in a recent study of magic in classical antiquity, magic is just the ritual practice of your enemies. Like the difference between freedom fighters and terrorists, whether someone is doing illegal magic or legitimate religion depends on which side the person defining the practice is on. For the most part, in societies before the modern period, when someone, let's call him Rupert for the purposes of discussion, says that there's magic going on, the statement takes the form of an accusation. And the accusation is that someone else, let's call him Steve, is doing magic. And what makes it magic is that it isn't the right kind of ritual practice, our kind of ritual practice, the Rupert kind of ritual practice. So Rupert is accusing Steve of magic, let's say in the first century CE in Rome. Rupert, of course, does rituals himself. He is, for the purposes of our example, uh, let's say a normatively religious pagan Roman. But Steve's rituals, according to Rupert, are illegitimate magical rituals and are thus illegal and foreign to Rupert's own perfectly wholesome ritual practices. Perhaps Steve belongs to the detested and suspect religion of Christianity, whom everyone knows to practice abhorrent sexual rites and human sacrifice. And incidentally, these were charges that were actually leveled against Christians by their pagan opponents. And it will come as no surprise, the Christians then went on to level exactly the same charges against their opponents later on when they came to have the normative upper hand in the Roman world. Now, Steve, our Christian in this example, will have to deal with his accusation, and he may do so in two main ways. He can deny that he does the rituals in question, just say, we don't do these sex orgies and sacrifice babies or whatever. Or he can argue that the rituals in question are in fact not magic, but legitimate parts of religious practice. In other words, those accused of magic, in the sense of illegal ritual practices, have two main options, outright denial or an attempt at counter-normativity. One more thing before we move on to our next point. The Magos we've been talking about seems to be a man. Where are the Lady Magi? Well, there aren't any in the ancient Greek world anyway. The powerful female practitioners of what we might call magic were certainly present to the Greek and later Roman mind, but they had a whole separate vocabulary devoted to them. So alert listeners at this point will be saying, wait a minute, are you trying to tell us that Circe, the powerful enchantress who appears in Homer's Odyssey hundreds of years before the appearance of the term magos in Greek, is somehow not to be associated with magic? I mean, she clearly does magic. She turns Odysseus's crewmates into pigs. If that ain't magic, I don't know what is. No, gentle listeners, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the Greek term magos, with its particular set of associations, denotes a male figure in Greek and also as magos in Latin. So if we want to use the term magic to cover a wider range of activities than those which are termed magia in ancient Greek and magia in Latin, maybe including the ladies when we talk about magic, then we need to realize that the terms magia, magia, and magic do not map onto each other exactly. And that brings us to our next point. The problem with the term magic is that it's very useful, indeed it's essential, as a first-order term in many contexts, but it's really problematic as a second-order term. So what do I mean by first and second-order terms? Well, it's all going to get a little bit academic up in here for a minute, but bear with me because we're going to look at a few concepts which will be very important for the podcast going forward and which are just generally helpful for refining one's thinking, not just about magic, but about the ways in which we talk about cultures more generally. By first-order terms, we historians mean terms as they are used by the folks that we are studying. And by second-order terms, we mean the terms we come up with ourselves to describe these folks. 
Let's illustrate this with an example, sticking with the names Rupert and Steve, which we mentioned earlier, since they're so redolent of arcane mystery. Let's say we're studying two historical traditions. One of them, the religion of Rupertism, has a whole religious practice based on offering pineapples to a statue in the shape of a giant snake with six heads. Nice. Now, the Stevists are an iconoclastic puritanical offshoot of Rupertism, who, with their one-headed snake statue and offerings of regular apples, are a detestable heresy as far as any decent Rupertist is concerned. The Rupertists accuse the Stevists of magic, on the grounds that the Stevists use their apple-based rituals to put curses on the Rupertists. Plus, by apples, the detestable Stevists really mean Rupertist babies snatched in the dead of night and cruelly murdered on the altars of their vile, one-headed snake god. The Stevists naturally deny that they're doing magic. They say that theirs is a true, pure religion, and that the Rupertist six-headed snake is actually a demon posing as a god, so that all the Rupertists' claims to normativity are false, and that they are in fact the real deviants. Only the path of Steve avoids the taint of forbidden magic, because only a one-headed snake can be a fit symbol for the true deity, who is one. Now, if you know much about the history of religions, a lot of this will seem kind of familiar, and in a way that is not too much sillier than the real, genuine historical controversies which have actually led to enormous bloodshed down through history. In fact, we're sort of caricaturing here some of the genuine claims that were made when Greco-Roman pagans attacked the new religion of Christianity, and then the Christians responded. But the point here is first and second order terminology. When studying the claims and counterclaims in the Ruperto-Stevian controversy, as it's known, we're right to use the term magic as a first-order term. The Rupertarian accusation that the Stevists practice magic is right there in the sources, after all. They say magic, or they use the Greek or Latin terms magia and magia, which we are right to translate as magic. And through research into Rupertist heresiological materials, we've come to have a very good idea of what the Rupertarians mean by magic, stuff like curses and sacrificing babies. We can also say, rightly, that the Stevist counterclaim uses the first order term magic, but we will note here that there's a difference. The Stevists want to say not that the followers of Rupert are sacrificing babies or anything like that, but rather that they are unwittingly the tools of the six-headed snake demon that they wrongly consider to be the supreme god, and so are practicing evil magic whenever they think they're just doing a normative pineapple sacrifice. We thus have two very different first-order uses of the same term, magic. But when we as historians try to unravel the complex web of accusations and counter-accusations, which are such a notable feature of the Ruperto-Stevian controversy, we run the risk that by using a single second-order term, magic, which does not convey the very different types of accusation being made by each side, will create all kinds of confusion. This, in a nutshell, is the problem in real-life history of ideas when we use the term magic as a second-order term. Magic means so many different things to so many different groups throughout history that it's hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all definition, and this is complicated by the fact that the word magic is very often a polemical term, designed to discredit some opposition and to shore up a normative credentials of the ones making the accusation. So this is always something to be aware of when using modern terms to discuss historical ideas. Look at the term Ruperto-Stevian controversy. It's a good second-order term because it's relatively neutral, but we must be aware that the Rupertists and Stevists had their own first-order terms to describe this historical brouhaha, namely the damnable Stevist heresy 
and the detestable sorcery of the followers of Rupert, respectively. Here there's no danger of mixing our first and second order terms, but when both they, the Rupertists and Stevists, and we, the 21st century historians, are using the same word, namely magic, you see the potential for mix-ups. Every time I say the word magic in this context, you'll have to ask yourself, does he mean what the Rupertists mean by magic, or what the Stevists mean by magic, or does he mean what he means by magic, which he might not have even defined very well at the beginning of his podcast. The same goes for another piece of scholarly terminology, which is very useful to have in your arsenal, and I'll introduce you to it now. These are the terms emic and etic. These are basically synonymous with first and second order, but with an extra shade of meaning denoting the way we try to get inside the heads of followers of a given tradition. So an emic use of the Rupertist term magic will attempt to outline exactly what the followers of Rupert were getting at when they accused their hated enemies in the camp of Steve of magic. We're aiming in some way to think like Rupertists in an effort to get under the skin of the movement and really explain it, and to use terms the way the people we study use them. With an etic term, on the other hand, we might mean something that the people we are studying never thought of in their wildest dreams, but which has some explanatory power to us. So this will be a term that we moderns have invented for our own explanatory purposes. So here we might refer to the Rupertists' hexicephalic ophitolatry as a way of distinguishing their worship of a six-headed snake and all the theology and beliefs that go along with that from the monocephalic ophitolatry of the Stevists. But we don't mean to imply that any Rupertarian ever considered himself a hexicephalic ophitolator. This is an etic term. Now, as an added bonus, we should introduce here one more methodological item of jargon, which a lot of folks aren't familiar with, but which is pretty useful. The wonderful academic term, heuristic. A heuristic term, which comes from the Greek heurisko, to find or find out, is any term which has value insofar as it helps us understand a phenomenon under discussion. So, hexicephalic ophitolatry, it might be argued, is a heuristic term for what the Rupertists were getting up to with no implication that they themselves use the term. In less silly historical discourse, we might consider terms like early modern or neo-pagan or even religion to be heuristic terms in a given context. The key here is that the scholar using these terms had better give a damn fine explanation of what they're taken to mean in the context in question. Otherwise, their claims to be heuristic are false, and they actually just serve to confuse issues. Now, this is a very common problem when studying cultures, and everyone should be keenly aware of the danger of heuristic terms being imported back into the mouths of people in antiquity or in other cultures who have no interest in or even knowledge of the term being used. Right, so that's enough with the terminology stuff. Hopefully, if we apply the lessons gleaned from the Ruperto-Stevian history, or to use the more neutral etic term, the academic study of Stevo-Rupertarian ophitolatrianism to the use of the term magic as a second-order term, we can see why it's problematic. Our sources themselves, that's the Rupert and Steve documents, use the term all the time, whether the Greek and Latin cognate terms magia and magia discussed above, or they might use other terms in other languages like Hebrew, Arabic, German, Urdu, etc. The point being that if these are terms that are best translated by the English word magic, we may end up referring to them in English as magic. In fact, one of the most fascinating aspects of the Western esoteric traditions is the persistent attempts that are made, starting maybe with Iamblichus, whom we'll be talking about in future episodes, but continuing right up to modern times, 
to normalize magic, to argue that magic is in fact not illegal or illicit, but rather some form of good practice. But different esoteric thinkers will often, like the followers of Rupert and Steve, have very different conceptions of what magic is. And by using the same word for our second order term, as the sources use in a different first order context, we risk confusion. You just said magic, but did you mean insert heuristic definition here, or did you want to refer specifically to the Stevist, theologically nuanced definition of magic as the unknowing worship of demonic powers in the form of a six-headed pineapple-devouring snake? This is the question one might ask. Now, if you're not an academic, and I don't blame you if you're not, this is all hopefully clear. And if you are an academic, I hope it hasn't been too boring because you probably did this stuff in your first year of religious studies or whatever. There's some good news for both camps, however. We have tons of fascinating research into the field of magic throughout history, which is pretty much unconcerned with all the definitional stuff I've been stressing here. So if you're like me and you find the persistent human belief in the ability for certain practices to alter reality in transformative and, well, magical ways, don't worry because we'll be getting into all that stuff in all its glory and in great detail in the course of the podcast. In fact, we're going to start the very next episode as we explore some of the amazing magical culture of Greco-Roman antiquity. But at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't take this episode to emphasize the degree to which we need to be cautious when talking about terms like magic. It may come as no surprise at this point that a number of academic specialists reject the second-order use of the term magic altogether for reasons which have hopefully become clear at this stage. And speaking strictly, they're right to do so. Of course, they still run into problems. Let's say I don't want to use the term magic as a second-order etic term because of all the confusion this can generate, and I've opted instead for ritual acts of power, which is one popular scholarly substitute for talking about what we generally mean when we say magic. This is a move in the right direction. Ritual acts? Check. Power? Check. Lack of polemical value judgments? Check. So we're good to go, right? Nope. There are exceptions and issues of demarcation, both of which present problems. For a prominent exception, let's look at the theory of magic propounded by Aleister Crowley, who is perhaps the most important theorist of magic in the modern period. For Crowley, magic is defined as, quote, the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Now, no ritual is necessarily implied here. Making a cup of tea would be a Crowleyan act of magic, provided that the tea were successfully made and that the true will of the tea maker was indeed set on tea making. Yes, you can define making tea as a ritual if you want to, but you see what I mean here. So that's at least one tradition which defines itself as magical and which we will probably want to discuss under the rubric of magic, but which doesn't necessarily involve rituals, although the act of power part is there. In fact, the Crowleyan Magus making a cup of tea might be an immensely powerful figure understood as an agent of the true will. In pre-modern times, this kind of deritualization is less prominent, but it does still crop up. So we should ask whether we want to discuss these sorts of magic in the same breath as things like curses, love potions, or necromancy, which do pretty much always involve some form of ritual practice. But there's the further problem of demarcation, which is a more serious problem, because it applies to pretty much every age and cultural context where we want to look at magic and differentiate it from religion. How does a ritual act of power in a magical context differ fundamentally from a ritual act of power in a religious context? The short answer is, it doesn't. Not at all. 
unless you are a member of a tradition which has a stake in these matters, like the Stevists and the Rupertists, who would argue that, of course, there's a difference between true religion and illicit magic. And this brings us to a really fascinating and really important episode in the evolution of Western ideas about magic, the famous or infamous magic versus religion debate. This debate, broadly speaking, was a product of the widespread triumphalist discourse arising in the Enlightenment period, which tried in one way or another to separate magic, bad because irrational and because they do it, from religion, good because rational and we do it. For the really classic and really influential formation of this magic-religion dichotomy, however, we need to look at the work of Sir James George Fraser of Golden Bough fame. Now, The Golden Bough is an immense, rambling, multi-volume survey of what I guess we might call, broadly speaking, folk belief and religious practices from around the world and throughout the ages. The subtitle to the second edition of The Golden Bough, this mammoth work, was subtitled A Study in Magic and Religion. And it made a claim which has had immense influence, and it should be said, done immense damage ever since. This is the essentialized magic-religion distinction. Many people had made versions of this distinction before, but Fraser was the guy who really put it on the map in a big way. Primitive people, we are told, have magical beliefs. Civilized people have religious beliefs. And this goes for practices, of course, as well. Just as the two sorts of people are supposed to be mutually exclusive categories, civilized and primitive, so religion and magic were mutually exclusive, and this by definition. If this reminds you of the earlier claims and counterclaims of the Rupertist and Stevist parties, you're on the right track. As a civilized Englishman of the 19th century, of course Fraser's own normative beliefs defined what was legitimate ritual practice, i.e. religion, presumably some form of tepid Anglicanism, and of course magic was constructed to match the characteristic of the other foreign people whose practices and beliefs were unacceptable. Now, the locus of unacceptability has shifted, of course, in this modern period. In modern times, we're not so much concerned with the evil of magic, since we tend not to believe that magic actually works. We're against it because of its supposed irrationality or primitiveness. And of course, it's probably significant that in the case of Fraser's theories, the magic folks just happened to include the primitive populations who made up the vast bulk of Britain's colonial empire. The Native American peoples who were at that time in the final stages of subjugation and extermination, and so on and so on. So civilization and true religion hand in hand against primitive savagery and magic. Hurrah! Now much has been written against this way of thinking, but the main and obvious objections should be clear. If we're taking for a moment an etic outsider view of the religion versus magic debate, it's pretty impossible to divide clearly between the two realms in a really clear-cut way. Both use rituals, both aim to achieve results through these rituals, and unless you subscribe to a given religion, it's unclear why the aims of one should be considered illegitimate and illegal, while the aims of another should be seen as okay and cool. Six heads or one head doesn't matter to me, since I'm neither a Rupertist nor a Stevist. A lot more could be said about this, but I'm just going to make the obvious point that one man's magic is another man's religion, and refer listeners to the bibliography accompanying this episode for more on the religion-magic debate. So where does this leave us? We've talked a lot about magic and the problems with using it as a second-order term. Now I want to sum up this debate with a further problem, and get back to that intriguing magical labyrinth mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Magic is undoubtedly either wholly misleading or at best highly problematic as a second-order term. But we will, of course, be using it throughout this podcast. 
Why? Well, while we ought undoubtedly to free ourselves from this troublesome term, we won't do so. It's just too rich. Some terms like religion and magic just refuse to die. In fact, it's often the really important terms which have the power of being both undefinable and utterly central to the way in which we think and live. Consider love, if you will. It's a ubiquitous word in English, attached to some of the most profound aspects of human life, but also used for some really lightweight stuff. If you tell your beloved, in a moment of particular passion, that you love her or him or whatever, and then later, in the same day, mention that you love pineapples, something is clearly going on with this word, love. Similarly, listeners to this podcast will be hearing about a number of magical traditions, some of which like the esoteric traditions of theurgy, natural magic, and spiritual magic, are informed by profound philosophical insights and concerned with the deepest contemplation of the laws of the universe and the place of human beings in the universe. But then, at the same time, there's Black Magic Woman by Santana, or the million other pop-cultural references to magic which surround us all the time. How can we relate the Renaissance mage standing at the center of a universal macrocosmic web of correspondences and spiritual influences, of which he is both the microcosm and the master, to the lines, I've got so much that I want to do when I dream I'm alone with you. It's magic, by the Swedish supergroup ABBA. As in the case of love, when applied to both lovers and pineapples, it's hard to conceive that we're talking about the same thing here, with the Renaissance mage commanding the laws of the universe and uh, whatever Abba's talking about, but we simply cannot dispense with either love or magic, certainly not in the world of everyday life and seemingly not in the world of scholarly methodology either. So we'll have to find some way of dealing with the multiple levels of meaning and seriousness evoked by the term magic. Oh, and by the way, love, and by that I mean the sexual kind, not the pineapple kind, definitely comes into magic. So does death, another big theme, both in the context of causing death through magical means and reversing it through magical means. This is the art of necromancy, which we will have a lot to say about in the course of the podcast. So for that matter, does language itself, which is actually, if you think about it, sort of been the theme of this episode, as we've circled around the meaning of a single word, magic, trying to figure out if we can define it adequately, deciding that we can't, and now going on to use it anyway. The ancient Greeks were the first, but far from the last, to note how persuasive rhetoric could act as a kind of magia, taking over our minds as if by magic. So language and magic are intimately entwined. The Greek word gramma, meaning a letter, a piece of written text, gives rise to a number of intriguingly related concepts in English. Grammar, the underlying functional structure of language, but also glamour, with its original meaning of a magical deception, one that caused something to appear as something else. And of course, modern glamour, with its use of cosmetics and all the rest of it, is also a kind of magic that makes something appear as something else. And the word for a magical book, grimoire, was imported from French and now enjoys life as a native English speaker, alongside the archaic term grammarie, spelt with one M, referring to knowledge of the magical arts. All of these words come from a seemingly innocuous word meaning letter, and both language and especially that most magical of arts, writing, are deeply embedded in the story of magic. We are now deep within the labyrinth of magic, where powerful forces of human existence crowd in from every side. I hope this episode has given some tools for navigating this labyrinth without getting lost, 
but I wouldn't want to end on a depressingly dry note that reduces magic to nothing more than a problematic term, which is why I'm exploring some of these themes to whet your appetite for the explorations of magic to come in this podcast. The magical traditions which will be examined in the course of the podcast are definitely problematic, but therein lies their fascination. We need the labyrinth, and we want to explore it. We should just be aware of the tricks it can play. So join us next week as we plunge in headlong in the company of an excellent guide to this strange territory, Professor Daniel Ogden, a leading authority on magic and classical antiquity. Until then, and until Rupert and Steve settle their differences once and for all, stay esoteric. <laughs>